We're so glad that you're here joining us this morning as we begin to dive back into a series that we have called Greater Than. Say Greater Than. Come on, y'all got to talk to me today, okay? I'm going to make sure we're all awake and alive in God's house this morning. We're, we're studying the book of Hebrews in this series that we've entitled Greater Than. And we began about, uh, about two months ago. We went through the first several chapters and then we took a short break. And now we're jumping back in this morning. And if you remember... The book of Hebrews, we actually don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. It's one of the few books in the Bible where the author, it's, it's debatable. Some people say one person or another, but the truth is we just don't know. And so the Hebrews was written by an unknown author to Hebrew Christians, okay? So these were Israelites that were probably second generation, second generation believers. They had, uh, they had left the ways of Judaism and they were following Jesus. And the author really has this purpose in mind as he's writing the book of Hebrews. He is trying to encourage these new, new Jewish Christ followers to keep going. Come on, anyone ever need some encouragement to keep going? Come on, Dory, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Yep, yep. He's encouraging them not to give up. Hello? And I, I just want to encourage every single person in this room. Maybe you feel like you're in a good place with God and you're moving forward, or maybe you're here today and you feel a little stuck, or maybe you're questioning where you're at with God, I just want to encourage and challenge every single person in this room, don't give up. Look at your neighbor and tell them, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't quit. So they're, they're asking this question, these Hebrew Christians, they're asking this question, is this worth it and is it working? In other words, is my faith in Jesus worth it because they were being persecuted they were being ostracized by their own people. So there, there, were, uh, there was an impact that was happening to them. And so they're questioning, is this worth it? And then second question, is this actually working? Is my faith in Christ accomplishing anything? Come on, some of us sometimes wrestle with those questions our own selves. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus so that you don't get discouraged, so that you don't give up. And he walks through, uh, the author walks through a series of comparisons of why and how Jesus is greater. Why and how Jesus is sufficient. And this morning we're going to read, begin by reading just a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It's going to be on the screen. If you have it in your devices or in your Bible, we're in Hebrews chapter 4 to begin today. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this. For the word of God is alive, say alive, and active, say active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, say everything. Everything is uncovered 
and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The title of today's message is God's Scalpel. God's Scalpel. Let's pray together as we dive into the word today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that that you are here with us. I pray that your word would fall on fertile ground today, that our hearts would be open. God, that our, our, our minds would be open, that we would be receptive. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that perceive today. And, and Father, I pray that, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but God, that we would be doers, that we would put it into practice, that we would apply your word to our life. And Lord, we thank you for it today. In Jesus' name, everyone says, Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking this question. Has anybody in the room ever had surgery? Anybody in the room, you've had surgery? Okay, hands going up, hands going up. All right. Uh, now, I, I've had a, a close call and I've had one surgery myself. So my close call, uh, I'm going to tell you all an embarrassing story this morning. Is that Okay. Okay, I figured it would be. I thought it might be. So embarrassing story. I was in sixth grade, uh, the same age as my oldest son, Colin. And I was in sixth grade. I grew up in the Midwest, for those of you who do not know. And it was winter time, and we had an ice storm. And so we had literally a blanket of ice. Now, my cousin had a pair of ice skates. We were at my grandma's house. And my cousin thought that it would be a good idea to go ice skating. I had never ice skated before, but I had watched some ice skating on TV. And I said, sure, sign me up. I'm in. I get to ice skating for a few minutes. Things are going pretty well. I'm like, this is easy. Let me do something like a little more tricky, right? So there's this little slope in my grandma's backyard, a little hill, if you will. We don't know about hills here in Louisiana. But there's a little hill, and I thought, I think I can make it up that hill. So I got brave. I got up a little speed, and I almost, say almost, I almost got to the top of that hill. But I lost momentum right as I was about to get to the top, and I started to go backwards on ice skates. It was not a pretty thing. My right leg loses, uh, loses its balance, comes up under me. I wasn't a big kid, but I was big enough. I fell on my own leg, broke it in four places. Everybody say, ouch. That was embarrassing, right? When people ask me, how'd you break your leg? When I say ice skating in my grandma's backyard, that stings a little, right? So I broke it in four places and I almost needed scalpel surgery in that situation. They were very close to doing plates and pins and, and going in and doing an invasive procedure, but the doctor was worried because of my growth plates. And so instead, I spent about 10 months in sixth grade in a cast. Not a fun year. One of the worst years ever, right? So that was a close call, but I actually did have surgery once. Do you all want to hear about that story? Three of you. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Here comes the story. I did have surgery when I was 21. Uh, many of you know that before I was a Christ follower, I had a little bit of a checkered past, right? Most of you have heard me share something about that. Now, don't look at me all judgy because I know some of y'all were a little checkered before your uh, encounter with Jesus as well. So before I was a Christ follower, I was, let, let's just say it, like this, not somebody that you would want your children to be around, okay? So 21 years old, I had a friend that was in jail. 
while my friend was in jail, I stole some things from my friend, okay? Now, my friend was a pretty good fighter, okay? He, he had a fighting family. He had a twin brother. They would just go out and fight for fun. He had a cousin that was really big, notoriously tough in my little hometown. And so he came from like a fighting crew. Well, my friend got out of jail. He realized that I had stole some things, including his girlfriend. Okay, keep it on the lowdown. So some things happened while he was in jail. When he got out of jail, needless to say, he was mad. I didn't know he was mad. I didn't think that he knew what had happened while he was in jail. Okay, until one day we met up at a friend's house and I got blindsided by a left-handed sucker punch. Come on, somebody. It wasn't just a sucker punch. It was left-handed. Now, some of y'all know left-handed people are just weird. Like, that shouldn't have even come from that direction. One punch, the fight was over. My nose was broken. I didn't even know we were in a fight until the fight hit me. So left-handed punch. Let's see, left hand coming this way. My nose laid over all the way on its side. When I tell you my nose was on its side, I mean my nose was all the way over on its side. Now, y'all are like, but your nose looks so good now. Well, that's because you're far away. It's a little crooked still. Look, it was laid over sideways. I saw a picture not too long ago of, of what it looked like between the time of the fight and the surgery that I needed. How many of you know I needed a surgery at that moment, right? My nose was messed up. I wouldn't have the beautiful wife that I have today if not for that doctor that fixed my nose. My nose was all the way laid over. Now, I know that surgery isn't fun, but I needed a surgery. And I actually wanted to have that surgery. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? I didn't want to have my nose laying over for the rest of my life. That ain't right, right? I couldn't breathe good. I didn't look good. Now, I look, I look a, a little good now. Come on, help me out, somebody. But I needed repaired. And there was only one way to fix it. I had to get my nose surgically repaired. Now, not with the scalpel, but some of you know, they had to actually put me to sleep and re-break my nose to straighten that thing out. I woke up and I, I looked a little. I was like, well, it's kind of straight, I guess. I, I was a little disappointed. I thought it was going to be perfectly straight. But I needed my nose repaired. Aren't you all thankful that my nose isn't sideways today? I know I am. Come on. Look, come back next week and I'll tell more fun stories about myself. But here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Surgery isn't fun, but sometimes it is needed. All right? Surgery is not fun. That wasn't fun to get my nose rebroke, but I needed the surgery, right? And some of y'all that have had surgery, you know that it wasn't fun to get that procedure done, but you needed the procedure. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews as we look back on this verse that we read this morning, he's comparing the word of God, the Bible, as a precise, say precise, a precise blade, a precise blade, much like a surgeon's scalpel that knows just how to cut, just where to cut, just how to fix the things in our lives that need some fixing. In other words, there's a way to interact with the Bible that is like spiritual surgery. It's like surgery for our soul. And so today I want to pose this question to you as we jump into God's word. I want to ask you, do you only read the Bible to be encouraged or do you also read the Bible to be changed? 
Do you only read the Bible as a source of encouragement? Or when you read the Bible, are you interacting with God's word because you have an expectation that it can bring about change or soul surgery in our lives? Look at what the author said in verse 12. He said, the word of God is alive and active. It is alive and and active. Say it with me. It is alive and active. Oftentimes, the problem with our approach to this book is that we don't fully understand the power that is in this book. This book is not like other books. This book is alive. This book is active. This book has power to change us if we will allow it to. We actually get our word energy from the Greek word that's used here, active. In other words, it's active. That means there is energy in here. Now, any of y'all that know science, I'm gonna throw out an energy word and, and I'm gonna use it in this context. There is potential energy in here. Potential energy means there's energy in here if it gets set into motion. Now, whose responsibility is it to set the energy into motion? That's up to you and I, right? It's up to you and I to unlock the potential energy that's in this word. So the, the Greek word active, we, we get our word energy from that Greek word. And, and the big idea here is that it's alive and active. There's life-changing life-giving, dynamic power in this book. If you're with me, say amen. It's, it's not like any other book. It's not like just a historic book that has good stories that we can learn from. This book actually has life-changing power. It's alive and it's active. Now, maybe you're here today and, and that, that, that premise in and of itself is challenging for you. You may be here and, and maybe you're not even a Christ follower. And, and so you would say, yeah, I, I don't really know if I can trust that the Bible is alive and active. I don't know if I actually believe what you're saying, preacher, that the Bible is alive and that it's active. How can I trust that the Bible is real? Come on, we've all asked that question. Even, even those of us who maybe have followed Christ for a long period of time. How do we know that what the Bible says is real. I want to give you a quick litmus test on any ancient document on how to assess the validity of that document. Is that okay if I give you a quick litmus test today in the room? It's actually called, I'm, I'm going to go ahead, even if you didn't give me permission, I'm going anyway. Here I go. It's called the legal forensic method. Now all you CSI fans just got interested, even if you weren't right before I said that. It's called the legal, legal forensic method. And it's used in assessing the validity, the authenticity of not just the Bible, but any ancient historical document. And there are actually three tests within the legal forensic method that I want to just quickly share with you. Uh, the first, first one is the bibliographical test. Bibliographical test, okay? Now, here's what that means. This test examines the reliability of manuscripts and the time that elapsed between the events and the time of the, the writing of the manuscript. 
Make sense? Come on, follow with me here. I know this history talk. So it's, it's assessing the time that elapsed between when the things happened and when the manuscript was written, right? Now, why is that important? Because if a lot of time elapsed, how many of you know you might be getting a secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand account? Are you all with me? Shake your head like this if you are, so I know you. Okay, all right, some of you. So it's looking to see if there's a short span of time between the events and the time that the events were recorded in the manuscript. Because then we know, how many of you know there's a difference if you get firsthand information as opposed to second, third, fourthhand information? And so when we apply that to the New Testament, to the Bible, literally no ancient manuscript measures up. Here's why. The New Testament has thousands of ancient manuscripts that can be extensively compared to one another. Any researchers know that if you start cross-referencing things and point A matches up with point B and C and D and the dots connect, come on, some of y'all play connect the dots. Let me try to make this simple, right? If the dots connect, then it adds up. And so the bibliographical test is looking to make sure that the dots connect. Now, the second test is what we call the internal, say internal, internal evidence test. Now, here's what the internal evidence test means. This test concerns itself with whether or not there are multiple stories that align. Multiple, at, at, uh, multiple people attesting to the same thing without any contradictions. Y'all know what I'm saying. So that sounds a little bit like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, all giving us the same story, the same the same sequence of events, the same big picture without contradictions, right? And so the internal evidence test is looking for multiple people saying the same thing without contradictions. I'm just trying to help you all know this morning that this Bible is, is reliable, that it, it is a source of truth that we can rely upon. And so with respect to the New Testament, multiple eyewitnesses attest to the same things. Third test is this. The third and final histor historical test for accuracy for a document is the external, say external, external, external evidence test, which asks if evidence outside of the document corroborates what's inside of the document. Are there external sources that we can look to that, that corroborate what's inside of the document itself? And so in the case of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are countless archaeological discoveries that validate the historical accuracy of the Bible. And so when you look at these three tests, the bibli bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test, here's what we see. In summary, using historians, this is what historians do, not just Bible scholars, but historians, using their three key tests from the forensic legal method for validating an ancient text, there is no other work in ancient history that comes close to matching the reliability and the accuracy that is found in the word of God. What am I trying to say? we can rely on the reliability of God's word. 
That's all I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to use a little science to, to just prove the fact that the Bible is alive and active, which we know is what the, the writer of Hebrews started off this passage of Scripture saying. We can rely on the reliability of God's Word. Come on, if you believe that, say amen this morning. So he goes on to say, the writer continues to say, not only is it alive and not only is the Word of God active, But then he goes into this comparison to a scalpel. He says, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit. Come on, that's not a physical cut. That's something spiritual that's happening. Joints and marrow, he says. He's using what we call figurative language. He's talking about how sharp the word of God is and and he's comparing it to a sword. And, And he's saying what happens is the Bible can cut right to the conscience. It can cut right to the spirit. It can cut right to the soul. I don't know about you, but I remember the first time that the word of God was active in me, in my spirit. It was actually when I, when I made a decision to give my life to Jesus almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago, I was lost. I was far from God. And someone in my family actually shared a passage of scripture. And for the first time in my life, the word of God was alive to me. For the first time in my life, it wasn't just words on a page, but it was cutting to my soul, to my spirit. It was doing something on the inside of me. And I remember that, that feeling of just beginning to have a sense of understanding that, man, there is power in God's word. There is power in the word of God. Now, here's the problem sometimes. We prefer at times, if I'm being honest, to look at the Bible more as like a spa day or a massage day than a surgery day. Hello? Like, if I'm being honest, sometimes we, we look at this as a source of only encouragement, only comfort, and we fail to see the power that it has to actually change us from the inside out. Come on, if I'm being real, our tendency is to want comfort, not change in our lives. And not saying that this isn't a source of comfort for us and that it can't be a, a source of, of, of calming and peace in our lives. But if that's all that it is, we're falling short of the, the true intention of the word of God, which is to actually challenge us and change us from the inside out, cutting to the soul and the spirit. Here's what happens. Sometimes we want to focus on the Bible's promises but we overlook the things that cause us pain. We want to focus on the promises of God, the things that say, oh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yep, I love that one. Let me, let me grab onto that. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Yes, I love that, putting it on my refrigerator, in my, in my desk at work. I, I, I love that one. Let me, let me hold on to that. Or how about this? He will never leave me or forsake me. Yes, that one's encouraging. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that one, right? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Come on, I'm going to hang on to all of those. Come on, somebody. Now, those are good promises. Don't, don't get me wrong this morning. Those are promises from God, and those are true. 
But we can't only hang on to the promises and not accept the correction and challenge of God's word as well. Amen. Things like uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I don't know about you, but that challenges me to my core. That cuts to my soul. That cuts to my spirit. I know how I want people to treat me. And I know that the way I treat others doesn't always line up with what I would have them to do. I'm going to talk about a word in church today that, that may sound like a curse word. It's the H word. Holy. Y'all thought I was going to say something else. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy, right? That, that, is, that is something that should challenge us from the inside out. Holiness, uh, uh, trying to be more and more like God, setting our lives apart, being transformed by God to be more like God. What I'm trying to say is that the word of God should comfort us, but it should also challenge us. It should cut to the soul. It should cut to the spirit. It should expose things inside of our lives that God wants to help us change. When I was younger, I remember when I would be sick. I, I'm telling a lot of stories on myself today, so please don't share these with like my, my young children. They might repeat them later. But uh, uh, when I was sick, I did not like medicine at all. Come on, anybody else identify like you? You had like the gag reflex. It was like traumatic, man. And I remember many times when I was sick, when I would have like a fever. Nowadays, kids don't know how good they have it nowadays. Come on, somebody. But the baby aspirin 30 years ago or a little more, okay, uh, it was disgusting, Come on, it was like terrible. It had a terrible taste that I don't even want to think about. And so nowadays they mask baby aspirin and they make it taste like orange or bubble gum or something. You know, it like tastes good. But when I was a kid, it didn't taste good. Now, I remember having a fever, being sick at different times. And my mom would give me the aspirin and I wouldn't always take it. A lot of times I would actually take it out of my mouth as soon as, come on, any tricky people in the room when you were a kid, I was tricky. And I would fake take it and then I would take it out my mouth and throw it under the couch cushion because I didn't know what else to do with it. I was like laid up on the couch, right? And the problem was, come on, if you don't take your medicine, you're not getting any better, right? And I would hide it and then eventually I would get caught. But here's the idea. We've got to take the medicine that doesn't taste good sometimes. And like there, there's the, the, the bits and pieces that taste really good that we, we love to take in. But there are bits and pieces that maybe don't taste so good. But how many of you know they're producing the results that we need in our spiritual growth if we take them in? Come on. Just like I couldn't get any better if I didn't actually take the medicine that I needed. If I'm not willing to take the, take the instruction from God's word in the ways that I need it, then I can't grow. I can't get better. Anybody in the room want to grow? Come on. Anybody? Anybody want to grow in your faith and get better? Come on. Well, we need God's word to help us develop. And he goes on to say, the author of Hebrews goes on to say that that it's sharp like a sword and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That it judges the thoughts and the attitudes. I want to break this down really quickly. The word thoughts rever refers to any negative thoughts tied to our emotions. Come on. 
It's the negative thoughts that our emotions can stir up. Like when we're angry, when we're sad, when we're upset. Come on, that, that word thoughts is referring to any negative thoughts related to our emotions. Come on, we're, we're emotional beings. And sometimes our emotions can get the best of us. And it says the word of God judges our thoughts and our, the attitudes of our heart. Now that word attitudes is referring to any morally questionable thoughts. Come on, don't look perfect in the room like you haven't had any morally questionable thoughts this week when that person cut you off on the interstate, when, when that coworker was, was rude to you at work, right? We, we have morally questionable thoughts about things that we maybe are tempted to do that we know are not the things that we should do, amen? And so it says that, that it's sharp like a sword and it judges both the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now the heart just refers to our inner being, our inner person. Now, judging, actually in the original language, the word judge is the word that we uh, have derived the word critic from. Okay, so judge in this context, in our language today, we get the word critic. Okay, anybody in the room that you don't always love to get feedback, like you especially don't like to get feedback from certain people because you know they're being more critical than a critic, like help, trying to help you. Come on, work with me here. So God's word, watch this, is a just judge. The, when God's word exposes things in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our, in our thoughts, there, there's a justness there that we won't get from just any other place. God's word is a just judge. It's able to act as a critic of our innermost feelings and our innermost thoughts. And watch this, it shows us where we're wrong. Now, I know we don't always like to admit that we are wrong, but, but if we are relying on ourselves as the ultimate source of authority and truth, how many of you know we're in trouble? Come on. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching up here. If we're relying on ourselves as the ultimate source of authority and truth, then that sets, up, sets us up for failure. But we can count on the authority of God's word as a just judge of our innermost thoughts and attitudes. Now, as we continue on, uh, I, I'm reminded of a passage from the book of James where James, the brother of Jesus, said this. He said, Get rid of all the filth. This is James chapter one, verses 21 through 24. He said, get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts. Watch this. It has the power to save your souls. In other words, it's living and active. But don't just listen to God's word. James, the brother of Jesus says, you must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. Can I tell you, he, he wrote these words not for people that were not in the church. He wrote these words for the people that were in the church. And he's telling them, we can't just listen to the word, but we actually have to obey the word. How many of y'all have children in the room? Come on, raise your hand right quick. How many of you have ever told your kids to do something and then watched them walk away and do exactly what you told them not to do? 
And the question is, did you not hear me? Did you not listen? Or are you just not obeying? And James says, it's not enough for us to just listen to the word that we have to actually humbly accept it by doing what the word says. Listen to what he says in verse 23. If you listen, this is James chapter one. If you listen to the word and you don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. Come on. Now, we would never look in the mirror and forget what we look like. He says, if you listen to the word and you don't obey, it's like looking in this mirror and see my nose is still a little crooked from that thing <laughs> and forgetting what you look like. Now, what is the purpose of a mirror? The purpose of a mirror is to provide us knowledge of things that we need to change. Now, some of y'all are better looking than me and you're like, I, I, don't, I don't have to change much when I look in the mirror. But when I look in the mirror, I know if I need to shave. Now, I just shaved today, okay? I know, I know I'm a little scruffy still, but I just shaved. So I know if I need to shave. I know if I need a haircut. Come on. I know some of y'all, I, I know it's funny. It's okay, you can laugh. I know if I need to comb my hair. See, I don't have to worry about that, okay? I don't have to worry about that. I just wake up like this, right? The mirror tells me stuff about myself. The mirror tells me stuff, right? The purpose of the mirror is to provide me knowledge of what I need to change. Some of y'all are like, I don't need to change nothing. Well, God bless you. God bless you. This is like a mirror for a soul. Uh. The word of God is like a mirror for our soul. Now, here are two mistakes that we make with God's word, this mirror for our soul. Number one, we don't stop to actually look in the mirror. Y'all with me this morning? Don't shout me down. Okay. Mistake number one, we don't take time to look in the mirror. I know y'all are looking in this mirror every, every day. Some of y'all are looking multiple times a day, right? We take time to look and assess, am I looking right? Because we don't want to go out looking not right, right? That's embarrassing. With God's word, how much more should we stop and look in the mirror that can help us get our soul right? Come on. Can I tell you a couple of statistics? Only one in three people in in the church that call themselves Christ followers, read God's word regularly. One out of three, regularly. Can I tell you another one? Only one out of 10 people who call themselves a Christ follower, read it daily. One in 10. How many of you know if we ain't looking in the mirror, there are some things we got to fix about ourselves that we don't know we need to fix? Look, I, I'll admit, I'm doing an annual Bible reading plan, and I'm about 30 days behind. That means there are 30 days this year that I have not looked in the mirror. Come on, right? So, so I know that on those days that I look in the mirror, I'm more likely to get some things right inside of myself, that the Word of God's going to help me bring into alignment. 
Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. If we don't take time to stop and look in the mirror, we can't hide it in our hearts. So that's the first mistake that we make. The second mistake that we make is we look in the mirror, but we walk away and refuse to deal with the knowledge of what we saw. We might take a look, but then that thing that I saw that I I know probably God might want to change about me, I didn't take time to actually deal with that thing. It's like arguing with the mirror. Hello? It's like saying, mirror, I know you say I need a haircut, but I don't believe I need a haircut. Mirror, I know that you say I need some lip balm because my lips are a little ashy, but I don't believe that thing, right? It's like arguing with the mirror. No, my hair is fine. No, I, no, I don't need any lotion. No, mirror, you're lying to me. We walk away and we refuse to deal with, with what the mirror tells us. This mirror will reveal to us what we need to change in our lives. It is living and active. It's got power to show us the things that we need to deal with. But we have to first look and then do something about what we see. I would would encourage you to write these questions down. When you read God's word, here are a few questions you should be asking yourself. I would encourage you to write these down. Number one, are there any commands to obey or examples to follow? Number one, any commands that I need to obey or examples that I need to follow? Number two, are there, uh, does this passage expose any error in my beliefs or my behavior? Does this passage expose any errors in my beliefs or my behavior? Number three, how does this text lead me to interact with other people? These are questions we should be asking ourselves when we look in the mirror of God's word. Number four, last one. What is this passage calling me to do? What is this passage calling me to do? Again, the author says, if you only listen to the word and you don't apply it to your life, watch this, you deceive yourself. I don't know about you, but I don't want to deceive myself. What does it mean when you're deceived? Well, it could mean that you actually think you're right with God and things aren't quite right with God. That's where deception can lead us. Let me say it like this. We haven't learned the Bible until we've learned to live the Bible. We haven't really learned the Bible if all that we've learned is up here and we haven't actually put it into practice. Because if all we do is look and then forget what it says to do, then it's like we've looked in the mirror and forgotten what we've looked like. Two words that I I want you to remember today. Read, say read. And apply. Say apply. Read. We have to take time to look in the mirror. Apply. We have to do what the mirror tells us to do. It doesn't do us any, any good to argue with the mirror and say, no, God, I don't, I don't really like that part of your word or I, I don't want to do what I feel like you're leading me to do through that passage of scripture. 
but we have to read and apply. And so we have to ask ourselves two questions. Am I reading God's word consistently? And I, am I applying God's word practically? Important, important questions. Am I reading God's word consistently? Am I applying God's word practically? How many of you know there's an ongoing operation that God wants to do in the life of a, of a, of a believer, of a Christ follower? It's an ongoing process. And what I would liken it to is the difference between a minor procedure in our lives that might happen on a regular basis, like a doctor checkup versus a major reconstruction. Hello? How many of you know, if you don't pay attention to something over the course of time, things can get really desperate. But if we tend to something day after day after day after day, there might be minor adjustments that we need to make as we look in the mirror, as we apply. There might be minor tweaks. There might be attitudes or thoughts or things that we need to adjust. But if we don't look, if we don't apply over a, a span of time, there could be a major reconstruction. We, we might need an overhaul in our soul. I, I would compare it to this. A diabetic needs insulin to be able to maintain their levels. And I've known people who are diabetic that maybe didn't uh, take the time and attention to address their, their blood sugar levels on a regular basis. And sometimes it can result in a major dire surgery that's gotta take place. Sometimes they might lose a limb. There might be an amputation. In a spiritual sense, I don't want anybody to have to have an amputation, a major reconstruction because of a, a lack of willingness to look in the mirror and do what it says. Look in the mirror and read and apply and read and apply. And tomorrow I wake up again and I read and apply. And the day after that, I read and apply. But if I go weeks and months and some of us maybe even years without looking into the word and applying it to our lives, what happens is we find ourselves in need of a major reconstruction. As opposed to looking daily, reading daily, applying daily, so that we can in, in turn just have a minor procedure, just something small that God wants to do in your life today. And then tomorrow he wants to do another something small. Come on, how many of you believe God wants to do things in our lives that he can accomplish it through his word because it's active and it's living and it's, it's got energy. Come on, y'all, can you feel the energy in his word? But we've got to read it and we've got to apply it. Otherwise, we just look in the mirror and we forget what we see. Verse 13, he says this. Back to Hebrews 4, verse 13. Nothing, I'm sorry, this is, yes, Hebrews 4. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give an account. The word uncovered actually in this context means naked. It means we are standing naked on the inside. The, this word can leave us naked on the inside. 
And the word laid bare is only used in this one place in all of the New Testament. It actually is referring to your neck being exposed like somebody laying uh, a, a sacrificial victim laying with their neck exposed, with their jugular exposed, with the blade ready to cut the neck of the victim. What's all that mean? These two words together mean that we are naked and helpless before God. Naked and helpless before God and before his word. But watch, the purpose in God's cutting with his word to the soul and to the spirit is not to harm us, it's to help us. Some of y'all need to catch that today. It means when we're uncovered, when we're laid bare, it means that we're, we're helpless before God and his word. Why? This is true. And the things in our lives that don't line up, don't line up. And this is the standard. And he says, we're, we're laid out like our jugular is exposed, like we're naked and exposed. But the purpose of the word of God cutting us is not to harm us. It's actually to help us get better and help us grow in our faith. Come on, if you're with me, say amen this morning. Would you bow your heads this morning all across the room? Would you close your eyes? If we were all scheduled for surgery for some reason or another, one of the most important questions that we would ask ourselves is, who's my surgeon? Who's doing the procedure? How many surgeries have they done? How good are they? Are they an expert in their craft? Today, I just want to remind you that you can have confidence in Jesus as our surgeon. And you can trust his scalpel, which is God's word. We can trust the surgeon. We can trust the scalpel because he has your best interest in mind. He doesn't want to cut you in any way to harm you, to bring discouragement, devastation. He wants to help you. The word of God is a tool that God wants to use to help us grow and and walk with him more closely.